Open up your Bibles. Genesis. We're in the book of Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. The book of Genesis. We're in chapter 30 is where we're going to be this morning. Actually, we're going to be in chapter 30 and chapter 31. We're continuing our look into the life of Jacob, who becomes the father of Israel. And so he's this incredibly important person. So Genesis chapter 30, and uh, remember the scenes from last week that we looked at. Uh, the scenes we've been looking at actually for the last five weeks uh, as we've been working our way through the Jacob narratives. Jacob had to flee from the land of Canaan. Remember, the Lord called Abraham to leave Haran to go to Canaan 125 years earlier. And, and Abraham did. He responded in faith. He builds his family. The Abrahamic covenant gets, goes to Abraham, it comes to Isaac, and then it goes to Jacob. Well, Jacob has to flee, uh, he has to flee his home in Canaan after having deceived his father Isaac, after having stolen the blessing from his older brother Esau. He has to run for his life because he knows Esau is, well, he's bent on revenge and he has vowed to kill him. And so Jacob, with the help of his mom, uh, has to flee. So he leaves, he leaves Canaan, he travels up to Haran, 550 miles away he has to journey. And maybe two to three days into the journey, the Lord appears to him in a dream. And the Lord renews the Abrahamic covenant with him. And this is all review, you guys are nodding your head. This is good. I'm glad to hear it. See, you guys are nodding your head. This means you remember. Two to three days into his journey, he, the Lord, he has this dream and the Lord renews the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob and the Lord again promised him. He, the covenant that was given to Abraham then transferred to Isaac and now it has come to Jacob and the Lord renews all of it. He says, I'm going to be with you and you will have progeny and you will have property and my presence will go with you. And then he tells him, and I will bring you back to this land. He says, you're leaving now, but I'm going to go with you. And all of the, the blessings of the covenant are going to come to you, and then you're going to come back to the land. That's an amazing promise. Because here's Jacob. He thinks he's all alone. And the Lord says, oh, no, you're not alone. I'm actually with you every step of the way. Let me ask you, do you ever feel alone? Are you ever going through things in your life that you, you look at it and you're like, I'm all alone in this? That's actually a lie, because you're not. The Lord's always with you. The Lord tells Jacob, you, you feel alone. The world is threatening right now. There is plenty of danger ahead of you, and yet I will be with you every step of the way, and I'm going to bring you back into this land. And then, also in the, in the dream, Jacob sees this large staircase. Huge staircase. It probably was in the form of the ziggurat, which was all over the Mesopotamian area. And on this staircase, he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And in every other religion, the God would be at the top, telling you how to work your way up to him. And that's not what he sees in the dream. He doesn't see a God at the top saying, climb up to me through your good works and through your good behavior. He doesn't see that. What he sees is the Lord comes all the way down. And upon waking up, Jacob says, oh my, this is actually the gate of heaven. And he realizes in that moment... That the way to God isn't through works of righteousness. It isn't through works of righteousness that he's got to do to earn his way to God. Because that's not it at all. But in grace, God comes all the way down. 
And it's at that moment that Jacob has his first encounter with the Lord. It's the seminal moment of his faith journey with the Lord. And what he does, if you recall, he worships the Lord with the materials that he has in the moment. And he didn't have much. He's penniless and friendless at this point. He doesn't have much, but he has a stone and he has some oil. And he says, this is what I have to offer to the Lord in worship. And this is what I'm going to offer to the Lord in worship. And so he, he pours the oil out on the stone. He names the place there Bethel, which means house of God. And then from Bethel, he travels all the way up to Haran. And when he arrives, again, he is uh, penniless. He's got nothing. He is penniless and friendless. But by the time he leaves Haran, 20 years later, he's extremely wealthy. And he has a quite a sizable family. And we read in the last verse of chapter 30, we actually read this. It says, Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So the Lord has been with him the entire time, and the Lord has prospered him. The Lord's presence has gone with him. And yes, now think about it, 20 years, this 20-year period. Yes, there were times in that 20-year period that were frustrating and filled with uh, filled with friction. Probably much in the same way, if you look back in your life, over any 20-year span in your relationship with the Lord, there were probably seasons of your life that were frustrating and filled with friction. Is that true? Yeah, probably so. But in the midst of all of those hardships, if you look back on it and you're honest with yourself, probably more prominent than the frustration and the friction was the Lord's goodness to you. Is that also true? Yeah, that's exactly the way it was for Jacob. Jacob... Well, there were a, a long season of frustration and friction for Jacob. But more prominent than the frustration, more prominent than the friction, was the Lord's blessing on his life. And that's often the case for believers. And so what we saw last week is Jacob gets up to Haran, and we see that Jacob meets Laban. And in the meeting of Laban, Jacob actually meets his match. Because Laban was every bit like Jacob. He was a manipulator. He was a deceiver. He was a con artist. Only he was much better at the game than Jacob was. Because he had way more experience at it. And the Lord used Laban. We saw this last week. The Lord used Laban as the means of discipline for Jacob. To show Jacob the ugliness of his sin And begin the process of transforming his character. And it's only when you actually see the ugliness of your sin for what it actually is, we actually begin to be um, repelled by it. So this is actually a terrible thing. And so the Lord uses Laban to show Jacob the ugliness of his sin so that he sees it for what it is. And he says, I don't want to be that way anymore. And so the Lord used Laban for that purpose. So there was the discipline of the Lord, but there was also the blessing of the Lord. Because through Leah and Rachel and their maidservants, they bore Jacob 11 sons and one daughter. And we'll see in the days ahead that Jacob will have another son. So over the course of these 20 years, the Lord has been, um, the Lord has been faithful to Jacob. He has been working in Jacob. And now in our text this morning, we're going to see real clearly um, that though Jacob's character is not perfect, and the Lord isn't done with him, the Lord again will prove his faithfulness to Jacob. 
The defining moment of Jacob's journey with the Lord is still in front of him. That, that, there's no doubt about that. But what we will see is that the Lord's provision and protection of Jacob is seen all the way throughout this account. So Genesis chapter 30 is where we're going to be. And as we uh, pick up the story, you need to know Jacob, he's worked for Laban at this point for 14 years. Seven years for what he thought was going to be Rachel and ended up being Leah, which is a total bummer. And then another seven years working for Rachel. And now after 14 years, he's, he has his own family. And he's wanting to provide for his family. He's wanting to go back to his homeland, back to his kindred, back to his family. And so let's pick up the story. Genesis chapter 30. And we're going to begin in verse 25. And, and what's going to happen is, this morning, we're going to see verse 25 and 30. I want you to hold your finger there, and then turn over to chapter 31, and go all the way to verse 55. That's where we're going to go this morning. So we're going to have to move pretty quickly. <laughs> and here's what you're going to see, though. In chapter 30, verse 25, what, uh, beginning in verse 25, what you're going to see is the Lord prospers Jacob. Against the odd, the Lord prospers Jacob. And then in chapter 31, what we're going to see is the Lord protects Jacob. He prospers him, and then he protects him. Um, which means, behind all of the machinations of man that we see in this account between Jacob and Laban, is the sovereign hand of God. Behind all of the scheming, manipulation, behind all of it, is actually God at work using all of it to prosper his people and protect his people and bring forth his redemptive purposes. So, beginning in verse 25, here we go. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my, to my home, that I may go to my own home and my country. So he's, he is ready to go home. He says, give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. So he tells Laban, my 14 years are up. I worked seven years for you for Leah. I worked seven years for you for uh, Rachel. And it's time for me to go. But Laban doesn't want him to go because he, Laban knows he's the key to the success of his business. He, Laban knows that the Lord has been blessing his business because of Jacob. He knows he's the key ingredient, and so he doesn't want him to go. And so he responds, verse 27. Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight. <laughs> Think about that. Think about what who Laban is and how he's dealt with Jacob. He says, If I found favor in your sight, um, let me keep speaking. I have I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Do you remember the last time? Do you remember what happened last time Laban told Jacob, name your wages? He's, he was utterly deceived by Laban. So if you're Jacob, are, are you really wanting to state your wages again to Laban? Or are you thinking, no, I'm going to get played again. I don't want to do this. But look at what happens here. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you. And how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came. And it has increased abundantly. 
And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Uh, he's, he's blessed you wherever I, I've turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Um, Jacob is saying, look, you've become wealthy because of me. The work of my hands, the skill that I've brought to it, the blessing of the Lord upon it, you've become wealthy because of me. But I, I need to provide for my own family. I have this large family now, 11 sons, basically four wives, one daughter. I need to provide for them. And so Laban responds, verse 31, he says, well, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Um, He says, you shouldn't give me anything. But then here's what he's going to do. He's going to set forth a business proposal to Laban. That in Laban's ears, it sounds too good to pass up. It sounds like just this wonderful plan. And so Jacob keeps speaking. Second part of verse 31. He says, if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today. Removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. And the spotted and the speckled among the goats. And they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come back to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So here's his proposal. Here's his, his brilliant business plan. He says, he says, I want the abnormal animals. That's what he says. I want the abnormal ones. Uh, Sheep are normally white. So Jacob says, I'll take the dark ones. Goats are normally dark. He says, I'll take the speckled ones. I want all of the abnormal ones. And normally, in a herd like this, that wouldn't have been more than 10%. Normally, wouldn't have been more than 10% of the herd would have been abnormal. And Laban's thinking a shepherd could charge up to 20% of, of, uh, of the earnings, of the revenue. And so J- Laban hears this. When he hears Laban's, or when he hears Jacob's business proposal, you can just imagine Laban's greedy little eyes are seeing dollar signs. And he's thinking to himself, he's looking at his son-in-law making this business proposal saying, what a schmuck! What an idiot. My daughters have married an idiot. I can't. By the way, father-in-laws, have you ever thought that about your son-in-law? No show of hands. Where's my father-in-law? Is he in here? No, he's not. Good. No show of hands. Excellent. But he, Laban has got to be looking at him thinking, what a complete fool. He would have earned more just by saying, I'll just be your shepherd. But he wants to do this abnormal thing. This is completely foolishness. And so Laban says, look at verse 34. Or, yeah, verse 34. Laban said, good. <laughs> Let it be as you've said. He can't, Laban's thinking about this. He says, this is unbelievable. What good luck I have. But then he thinks, I'm a businessman. And I don't believe in luck. And I don't leave anything to chance. So I'm going to stack the deck in my favor. And this is what he does. Look at verse 35. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted 
and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days, three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And then Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So here's Laban cheating again. He has his guys take all the speckled, spotted, and striped goats and lambs away. So that when the goats and the, and the sheep go to breed, all of those traits won't be present. None of those traits will be present. And therefore, all that will be left for Jacob is the ones that are not abnormal. Meaning, in his mind, he's thinking Jacob's not going to get anything. I'm going to stack the deck in my favor, and Jacob will not get a single one. He's not going to get any money. I'm going to reap all the profit. Just completely stacks the deck in his favor. He has this trick up his sleeve, but so does Jacob. Look at verse 37. And then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, in the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink... The flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black, uh, set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black and the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger, Jacob's. Okay, now let's talk for a second. Because you read this, and if you're like me, you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? Well, okay, here's what it is. In that time, in that culture, they believed in visual impression. Meaning that if you put a vivid sight in front of the animals when they were breeding, it would somehow transfer to the offspring. And so the offspring would have that color or that stripe or that thing that they were looking at while they were breeding. Now, again, like I said, that was the belief of their day. And that was kind of the science of their day. And in each culture and in each time, they have the science of the day that they kind of put their common belief in. And that was theirs. Um, we have it in our day as well. Um, you think in uh, colonial New England, for example. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor in colonial New England, and it was widely assumed, it was the common belief that on whatever day a child was born, that was the day that the child was conceived. So if you had a child that was born on a Wednesday, they would have believed that it was born, uh, that it was conceived on a Wednesday. And so when Jonathan Edwards had, out of his six children, or out of his eight children, six of them were born on a Sunday, they started to question Jonathan Edwards' afternoon naps. They said, hey, pastor, you really, you have time, apparently, to be calling on the parishioners after church. We, we know what's going on here. You see, again, a common assumption, a common belief based on the science of the time. And this was their science of the time. They thought if you laid a stick in front of an animal while it was breeding, whatever the striped, popular almond, 
the offspring would come out that way. That was visual impression. So Jacob, he gets the sticks out. Not a very glamorous job, by the way. Animals are breeding. You're getting the sticks out. They're doing their thing. You're laying all the sticks, hoping that they catch the eye of it. He's doing all of this. Uh, and then the next thing he does is actually based on pretty good science. And that is he engages in selective breeding. He figures out which ones are stronger of the animals. And he breeds those to his flock. He fl- finds out which ones are feebler. Not as healthy, not as strong, not as vigorous. He breeds those to Laban's flock. And through it all, the Lord prospers Jacob. The Lord prospers Jacob. He becomes very rich. And by the way, and we'll see it in a second, it wasn't the almond and the poplar sticks that caused Jacob's flock to flourish. It wasn't the almond and the poplar sticks that caused his wealth to increase all all along. It was the Lord in conjunction with Jacob's work that was prospering him. Jacob worked hard, no doubt about it. He used what he thought to be the best practices of the day. And the Lord provided. The Lord prospered him. And Alan Ross, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, he's on this section, he says something that's really insightful. Especially when you remember this isn't just a cute Bible story. I mean, we read the Bible sometimes and we think, oh, well, this is a cute story, kind of like it's Aesop's fables. But that's not what this is. This is a real-life man who's really trying to provide for his family. He's engaged in a business, and he's really trying to provide for his family. And Ross, in his commentary, he says this. He says, the believer who has to live among people like Laban faces a great crisis in the faith. How a believer competes in business with a non-believer is important to the faith. It is not a matter of fighting fire with fire, playing his or her game, or turning the tables on them. Rather, it is a matter of acknowledging that the true source of success is God, and then engaging in practices that are compatible with that belief. And I I thought that was a really good reminder, because I know many of you own businesses, Or your job involves making directional decisions. And it's a reminder that for a believer, uh, we don't have to engage in underhanded practices. You don't have to adopt the ways of the world to be successful. You don't have to lie. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to steal. You don't have to fidge on your income taxes. Because Why? Well, because the Lord is with his people. You show up and you do your absolute best. As if you're working for the Lord. And if material success comes your way, Well, then you acknowledge the Lord's provision, gratefully. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, London preacher, he, he said in one of his sermons years ago, he said, hard work is a splendid thing. He said, the best and the wisest thing in the world is to work as if it all depended upon you and then trust God, knowing that ultimately it really depends upon him. And I thought, that's so good. Uh, And that's exactly what Jacob does here. He he works diligently. He works really diligently. And we'll see in a second. He, he tells Laban how hard he actually works. He works diligently, but it was the Lord all along. And we'll see him come to this point. It was the Lord all along behind his work. It was the work behind the work. The Lord's work behind his work that actually caused him to prosper. Look at, it continues, verse 43. 
So this, all this uh, engagement happens of these, of uh, the breeding, and thus the man, Jacob, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys, meaning he has become incredibly wealthy. He came to Haran penniless and friendless, and as he prepares to leave, he has a full retinue. He has camels. Remember, we talked about camels. That was a, a symbol of wealth. So he's incredibly wealthy at this point. The Lord has certainly been with Jacob. And just as he's promised him back in Bethel, he has prospered him. He has been with him. His presence has gone with Jacob. And now, what we're going to see in chapter 31 is we'll see how the Lord protects Jacob. He has prospered him, chapter 30, second half of chapter 30. Now he's going to protect him. Because Jacob and his family will quickly flee. And Laban will hotly pursue. And the Lord will protect. He will protect his people. Beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So Jacob, he overhears this resentment of Laban's sons. Just He just hears it. And then he sees that Laban's countenance towards him has changed. That Laban was no longer with him. He no longer had his back. He was no longer looking upon him with favor. He was no longer with him. But the Lord was. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, I want you to see how the Lord was directing Jacob to move on and to get on with the advancement of God's program. And it's, there's two things that are at work here. First, there's the inward call of God. He says, I want you to go. I want you to return to your kindred. But so the first was the outward or the inward call of God. But also notice there's the outward circumstances. Laban and his sons were jealous of him. They were speaking harshly about him. Laban was no longer looking favorably upon him. There was a growing sense of friction and frustration. So there's this inward voice and outward facts. And the Lord uses both of those things in Jacob's life to get him to start the process of going back towards Bethel. And oftentimes... By the way, oftentimes in our lives, um, the Lord will use the frustration and the friction, the outward circumstances in connection with his inward call to move us in a new direction. Does that make sense? That's probably happened in your life, I'm assuming. That you've sensed the Lord saying, I want you to move on. I want you to start this thing in a new direction. And you've been hesitant to do it, maybe because you're flourishing, kind of like Jacob was. And you're hesitant to do it. Because you're saying, well, I got a good thing here. But then there's outward circumstances, there's outward facts, there's outward pressing situations that combine with the Lord's voice in your, the Lord's call in your life, you're saying, okay, this is the Lord telling me to move. This is actually spiritual guidance. And this is what's taking place in Jacob's life. There's these outward circumstances confirming the inward call of God that it's time to return. It's time to go back to your homeland. And so, um, the Lord's after the Lord had spoken to him, Jacob calls his wives out into the field. He doesn't want any prying ears. 
to be around when he's talking. He doesn't want to just go into the tent because he knows people can hide around the tent and hear what he's actually saying. So he goes, he tells us, his wife says, hey, let's go out into the field. And once he's out into the field, he puts a plan into motion to start the process of moving back home. Look at what he says, verse 4. So Jacob called. He, called, he sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit... Now look at what he says. But God did not permit him to harm me. Look at this. This is, this is an amazing occurrence right here. This is the high point of Jacob's life. He's acknowledging the Lord's protection. And how it was the Lord who prospers him. And look at what he says. He continues. Verse 8. He says, um, he says if, if he, talking about Laban, if he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If your father said, the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father. Uh, You see the term taken away there? It could be rendered plundered. The Lord has plundered your father. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen, now look at what the Lord says, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So he's, he's telling uh, Rachel and Leah, your father has meant to harm me, but the God of my fathers has protected me. He has prospered me, and he's calling us, to, he's calling us as a family to return to my kindred. Now notice what he's doing here. Because this is kind of a shock. He's finally starting to provide spiritual leadership in his home. How long did it take? 20 years. 20 years it took until he started providing spiritual leadership in his home. Now listen, character transformation doesn't happen overnight. We wish that it would, don't you? Don't you wish that it would, that character transformation would be an overnight process? But it never is. It's a long process. It's a long journey. Alan Redpath, the great late pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, he once said, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And that is so darn true. This takes 20 years. 20 years goes by. The Lord has been working on Jacob, slowly transforming his character. And finally, finally, after all these years, he starts providing spiritual leadership in his home. 
Again, character transformation does not happen overnight. And one of the marks of being a Christian, one of the fruit of the Spirit, is long-suffering. It's patience. It's taking a long view of things. When you're working with someone whose character isn't transforming at the rate you'd like it to transform, has that ever happened to you? (laughs) You're working with somebody, maybe your kids, maybe your spouse, maybe a brother or sister in the Lord, and you're thinking, they're not growing at the pace that I'd like them to grow. I wonder if anybody's ever thought that about you. They're not growing at the pace at which I would like them to grow. Listen, one of the fruits of the Spirit is long-suffering, taking a long view of things and saying and believing the Lord is at work here, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it. I am going to be patient with this person, and I'm going to walk with this person. Um, Long-suffering and patience. Walking alongside a brother and her sister when they fail over and over again. When you do that in a cancel culture society, you know what that does? That makes the gospel look beautiful. We live in a culture that wants to cancel anybody at any moment for anything they've done. And when a Christian comes along and says, no, you know what? Yeah, you screwed up pretty severely. You blew it here. You blew it there. You've blown it for 10 years. But the Lord's at work in your life. I'm called to be a part of your life. We're going to walk through this together. That You know what that does when a brother or a sister in the Lord does that? That makes the gospel look so darn beautiful. And that's what the gospel community is all about. That is what gospel community is all about because the Lord has been patient with us. He's called us to repentance. He's called us to transformation. And oftentimes, it, take, it has, takes us a long time. And that's the way we're to be with others. 20 years goes by and finally... Finally, Jacob begins to see and speak of the Lord's work in his life amongst his family. That's an amazing thing. So, he tells his wives, the Lord's calling me and us back to my homeland. Well, what would they say? Because it's not their homeland. Their homeland's here, in Herod. What are they going to say? Well, look at verse 14. Then Rachel... And Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Um, So they said, no, he's actually devoured our money. And part, this is kind of a little technical. Do you guys want to listen to it? Okay, good. Um, in that culture, part of the bride price, sometimes I ask because I don't know how curious everybody is about some of this stuff, but part of the bride price, a little history here, part of the bride price in that culture was always set aside for the daughters. Remember, bride price, when, when, when um, a man was going to uh, propose to marry a woman, he would give a dowry to the father. It's a good practice. I fully support it. Um, um, let me know. Let me know. I got two daughters. And, and they own horses, so I got to pay for this somehow. Um, so you would give money to the father. The father was to keep a portion of that money 
as an inheritance for the daughters later in life. Well, Jacob, when he came, he was penniless, right? So what did he do? The seven years of service was the bride price for each one of the women. It was the seven. It was the bride price. It was his portion of paying for his brides. So Rachel and Leah, they're looking at this and they're saying, what you've been doing all these years, these 14 plus years, that was your service. That was your bride price for us. We deserve cultural expectations. We deserve some of this. And every time our father tries to cheat you, what he's really doing is he's cheating us. And if the God of your father is saying it's time to go, then we can't wait to get away from our father. (laughs) That's what they're really saying. They're saying, let's go. And with that, Jacob's ready to go. He gathers his family. He gathers his livestock. He gathers his servants. And while Laban and his crew are off at a sheep shearing event, which is far away and is labor intensive, his whole thing is there. Everybody's there doing sheep shearing. Jacob and his family, they quickly flee. Look at verse 19. Um, Laban had gone up to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. She goes in, he's gone. He says, I'm going to steal her, or she says, I'm going to steal her household, his uh, household gods. Well, that's a new crime. God napping. How weak or impotent is a God? If your God could be stolen, you shouldn't worship that God. But that's what she does. She, she steals them. Now, why does she do that? That's a good question. What, is she just ticked off at her dad? Well, maybe. But remember, right before this, she's saying how uh, her father has robbed her and her sister of their inheritance. Later history tells us in the Newsy tablets um, that possession of the family gods strengthened one's claim to an inheritance. And so Rachel thinks, aha, he screwed me out of my inheritance. I'm going to make a way to prove that I'm, I actually do deserve an inheritance. And I'm going to steal his gods to ensure that I get a portion of my inheritance. Which means the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in Laban's little family. So she steals his gods. Verse 20. And, and, uh, and Jacob tricked Laban, or some translation was they stole the heart. Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. So he gets up and he quickly flees. He's him and everything he's got. They're fleeing as, as fast as they can. And we'll see in a second, Jake, or, uh, Laban hotly pursues. When it was told Laban, verse 22, on the third day that Jacob had fled, He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And that's a very interesting scenario here. Because while his gods are stolen, the one true God comes and speaks to Laban, essentially says, leave Jacob alone. Let him go. Verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob has pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban, with his kinsmen, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. Pitched tents, by the way, that's a military term. 
So this is all, now they're using, this is showing the, the escalation of the hostility. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me? Interesting, because that's exactly what Jacob said to Laban when he swapped to Leah, Rachel for Leah. It's exactly what Jacob said. He says, what have you done that you've, that you've uh, tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Again, military language. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? What would you be thinking of your Jacob? (laughs) I remember the last party you threw there, Laban. You deceived me the whole way through. And he keeps going. He keeps going with this flowering speech. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. But, and, and it is, it is in my power to do you harm. And he could have. He had, he probably had a larger size retinue than, um, than Jacob did. He says, it's in my power to do your harm, but the God of your father, spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Notice the Lord's protection on behalf of Jacob. And it overrides everything that Laban wants to do. He says, okay. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, I thought that you would that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. And take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Yeah, cue the whatever soap opera music you like at that moment. I mean, this is the tension in the, in the plot right here. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He says, if anybody's found with your God, you go ahead and kill him. And so, verse 33... So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and had put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you. For the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Okay, contrast the gods here. Contrast the one true God of Jacob and Laban. And the contrast between Jacob's one true God and Laban's gods is laughable. The narrator portrays these false gods as mute, deaf, and dumb. They're so impotent that they could be sat on by a woman in her menstrual cycle and not do anything about it. That's what the narrator is trying to say. Look how impotent these fake gods are. A woman in her menstrual cycle could sit on one and they're not going to say anything about it. That's how stupid, dumb, and deaf these false gods are. That's what the narrator is saying. This is supposed to be some humor in the text here. He's saying, this is laughable, the comparison between that God and, between these gods and the one true God. Now remember, Jacob doesn't know that she stole him. And after and after Laban searches and searches and searches, 20 years of frustration comes pouring forth out of Jacob. Look at verse 36. 
Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What did you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may, be, they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Um, from my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Normally, shepherds were not accountable for animals that were attacked by wild beasts. They didn't have to pay it. But Jacob went above and beyond the usual obligations is what he's saying. Verse 40, there I was. He's telling Laban this. There I was. By day, the heat consumed me. And the cold by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. This is actually the biblical portrait of a shepherd. Um, one who is willing to work incredibly hard on behalf of the flock. Both, this is a biblical portrait, both in terms of those who actually care for sheep and in terms of the role of a pastor. Um, I don't know if you know, the term pastor comes from the Latin word that means shepherd. And you want a good pastor? He's got to be a guy who's willing to work hard providing nourishment for the flock and then work hard protecting the flock. And they go hand in hand. He's got to be able to nourish through the teaching of the word and then protect the flock from false teaching. That's the biblical portrait of a shepherd. And thankfully at TCF, i got to tell you, um, we have an excellent team of pastors. I'll, I'll tell it to you on their behalf. They work incredibly hard at the job of nourishing the flock and protecting it. And that's, that's the biblical portrait of a shepherd right there. And so Jacob, he lets him know, he lets Laban know that his work has been exceptional. But he continues, verse 41. He says, these 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. Can you imagine? Six years having your wages changed 10 times, how annoying that would be? If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, the fear of Isaac is another way of saying the awesome, uh, the awesome God of Isaac. Um, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. <laughs> what a speech. He is a keen observer, a genuine believer. He is a grateful proclaimer of the Lord's help. And he knows beyond a shadow of the doubt that the Lord has protected him from Laban and has prospered him in spite of Laban. He knows that all of this, blessings, is the direct result of the sovereign Lord's hand upon his life. He recognizes it. And then what happens is Laban makes one more empty boast before coming to the conclusion that the Lord has really taken all of his possessions and given them to Jacob. And so he will propose a separation and a treaty. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. 
doesn't even recognize that he's given them away in marriage to him. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. (laughs) But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap. And there by the heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shagadutha. Um, this is an Aramaic name. But Jacob called it Galead. Um, so he get, Laban gives it an Aramaic name. Jacob gives it a Hebrew name. So finally, I mean, think about it. After Though they've lived as a family all these years, even the naming of this place indicates that they're completely different. They're different families. They're different nations. And they just need to find a way to live at peace with one another. And so they propose this covenant. Verse 48, Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galeed and Mitzvah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is, no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and a pillar, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you. And Jacob's thinking, Praise the Lord. I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do good. He continues, he says, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Um, notice, so Jacob, last part of verse 53, so Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now notice what Laban tries to do there. It doesn't really come out all that well in the text. So he proposes this covenant. And notice he says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor judge between us. Well, Nahor was a polytheist. It should be the gods of Nahor. And the verb judge there, it's in the plural, indicating that Laban has two deities in mind. He's saying, well, let's just just make this a little covenant between the God of the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Now, what would Laban do? What would you do if you were put in that situation? This is the last time you're ever going to see this person. And you've been so sick of this guy for the last 20 years. What would you do? Would you say, fine, whatever, I'm just going to do it just to get away from this guy. Just to be done with this guy. I'm just going to do it. But that's not what Jacob does. He doesn't go along with it. He doesn't go along just to get along. He doesn't go along with the, with the polytheism. Because Jacob knows, and what the text has been telling us all the way through, is that there's actually one true God. And that God is preeminent. And so Jacob responds, look at verse 53 again. Second part of verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna swear only to the, to the awesome God of Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country. And called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and they spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters 
and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. And the account ends there. And we'll do the same. Okay, let's stop there. Um, I have just a little bit of time. Here's what I want to do. I want to close by asking this question. How do we live wisely and redemptively in a world that is marked by frustration and friction? Because what we see in this account is Jacob moves forward with the Lord in spite of great friction and frustration. So the question for us is, how do we live wisely and redemptively in a world that is marked by frustration and friction? Let me offer you three ways, and I'm going to move quickly. Here's the first one. Be on the lookout for the Lord's providence. you got to be on the lookout for the Lord's providence. You want to move, you want to live wisely and redemptively in a world that's marked with frustration and friction. You have to be on the lookout for the Lord's providence. Let me ask you this. Do we see the Lord? Do we... Uh, Let me ask you this one. Was the Lord at work behind the scenes on Jacob's behalf? Oh, heavens, yes. All the way through. Which means behind the struggle of Jacob and Laban stands the sovereign Lord. And he was at work the entire time. Jacob thought it was all up to him to bring about his prosperity and his success. And so he was doing everything he could. Which was the right thing for him to do. He was doing everything he could. He was adopting the best practices of the day. He was engaged in selective breeding. He worked hard all day. During the heat of the day, he was up working. At the cool of the night, he was working. But then later he realizes, and he verbalizes to Rachel and Leah, that it actually had been the Lord at work the entire time, working behind the scenes on his behalf. And every time Laban changed his wages, the Lord went to work on his behalf. And I... Love that. Because it reminds us that the Lord is always at work behind the scenes on your behalf. He's working behind the scenes of your, on, behind the scenes of your life on your behalf, orchestrating the events of our lives to bring forth His redemptive purposes. And He uses all of it. He uses the strengths that we possess to do this. He uses the ingenuity and the work ethic of Jacob to bring this about. But he will also use our weaknesses. Well, where do we see that? Well, last week, we saw how the Lord used the jealousy of Jacob's wives to lead to the birth of the tribes of Israel. And this week, we saw how the Lord used the jealousy of Laban's sons to bring Jacob to the point where he would return to the land of his father's. Which meant all the way along, the Lord uses all of it. He uses the strengths of our life, but he also uses the weaknesses of our life. And we only like to think that the Lord can use our good facets of our life. Well, the Lord can use me here and the Lord can use me there. He can use it all, my friend. And he will use even your weaknesses to bring about his redemptive plan. So Christian friend, be on the lookout for the Lord's providence in your life. Because he's always at work on your behalf, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it. Which was, And there were certainly times like that for Jacob over the last 20 years. There were 20, 20 years of times that he thought, I don't know if the Lord's at work here. But all along he was. So how do we live wisely and redemptively in a, in a world that's marked by friction and frustration? First, be on the lookout for the Lord's providence. Second, lean into the Lord's process of sanctification. You want to live wisely and redemptively in a world that's marked with friction and frustration, you need to lean into the Lord's process of sanctification. Well, what's sanctification? Here's what it is. It's a fancy church word that simply means 
the process of becoming holy. You're in the process of having your character transformed into the, into the ways of Christ. And there is a growth process. There is a growth process in our lives with the Lord. And much of the growth happens. One of the guys at Men's Breakfast brought this up Friday. Much of the growth process happens in the friction and the frustration of our lives. Is that not true? It's oftentimes the way that the Lord grows us up. is right there in the midst of the frustration and frictions of our life. And that's what we see in Jacob. It takes 20 years, a long season of friction and frustration for his thoughts to turn Godward. Because the whole text, the whole couple of chapters before this, we hadn't seen any mention of God talk coming out of Jacob. But all of a sudden, after 20 years, his thoughts turn Godward and his character is slowly transformed. And when you're in a season of frustration and friction, um, the wise and the redemptive question to ask is this, Lord, where and how are you refining my character? Where and how are you refining my character? Because I want to lean into that process. Because I want to become, hopefully your aim is, I want to become more like Christ. And it's in the process of the frustration and the friction. The Lord uses it to refine refine our character. So Lord, use this season. Don't waste this. I don't want to waste this season of my life. Because the natural tendency on our part is when there's frustration and friction, we want to avoid it at all costs. Is that not true? We want to hide and run. We want to become a recluse. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, Lord, I don't want to waste this season. Use the frustration and the friction in my life right now so that my character would be refined to better represent Christ so that I can more fully enjoy Christ. That's the goal. And he'll do it. He will absolutely do this. I don't know who needs to hear this, but somebody does. Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, he says this. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you might bring it to completion on the day of Christ. No, it doesn't say might bring it to completion. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. It's a foregone conclusion. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul, again, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we know that in all things, even the frustrating, friction-filled days of our life, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. So my friend, if you're in a season that's filled, that's a season that's frustrating, and it's filled with friction, trust that the Lord's in it. Don't hide from it. Don't become a recluse. Lean into the process, and let the Lord refine your character in the midst of that process. Lean into that process. Third way, I'll close with this. Third way to live wisely and redemptively in a world that's marked with friction and frustration is you got to let your full weight down on the Lord's promise. You got to let your full weight down on the Lord's promise. Um, do we, let me ask you this. Do we see in this account that the Lord is faithful to his promise? Well, what promise? The promise that was given to Abraham that was transferred to Isaac and then came to Jacob that says, I will be with you. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And did you notice in the account that as long as Laban was with Jacob, he looked upon him with favor. 
He was blessed. But the moment that, and we read it, that Laban did not regard Jacob with favor as he had done before, it was that moment that the Lord began to plunder Laban of all of his possessions. It was at that moment, right after we read, and Laban did not look upon Jacob with favor as he had done before. Right after that, which means in his mind, he went from favoring him to cursing him, from blessing him to cursing him. At that moment, the Lord says, okay, he's no longer with you. I'm going to plunder him of all of his possessions. Now, here's what it means. It means that God is completely faithful to his promise. And you should let your full weight down on the Lord's promise. Well, what promise specifically? Here's the promise. The new covenant promise. That through Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins. You're, you're given new life. You're granted into his family. You're secure in his grace forever. And though there will be frustration and friction in our lives, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's the promise you let your full weight down on. You absolutely have to let your full weight down on it. Oh, I have more to say. Um, Christian friend, I'll sum it up like this. Let your full weight down on the new covenant promise. Christ is the good shepherd who at the cross was thrown to the wolves so you wouldn't have to be. Psalm 22, verse 16, looking forward to the cross, it says, dogs have encircled me. A band of evil men has surrounded me. They have pierced my feet and my hands. You see what he's saying? Christ is actually the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd that Jacob was only partial. He's the fulfillment of what Jacob was supposed to be as a shepherd. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life so that you can have new life in his name. He can provide forgiveness to you for your sins and protect you eternally in his grace. You come to him, you let your full weight down on the new covenant promise that in Christ, you're completely forgiven. You're given new life in his name. You are secure in his love forever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and I'll let you go. Why don't you stand? You've been sitting a long time. And we have folks up here who would love to pray with you when I'm done. If anybody wants prayer, please come forward. We'd love to pray for you. Also, don't forget the newcomer's lunch is next door in 15 minutes. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this long passage. of, But it has such truth for our life, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would let our full way down on the new covenant promise. That we would come to you. We would see you as our good shepherd. The one who has provided and protects us in your grace. And that we would live out of that reality well, Lord. That we would be men and, men and women who um, are shaped by the gospel to the core of our beings so that we can fully engage and fully enjoy the work of Christ. We trust you for these things. We thank you for one another and for your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.